This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the latest edition of the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and this week I'll be talking about an important shift in the Federal Reserve's thinking on interest rates and why that matters to all investors. Joining me on the podcast is Laura Souter. Hi there. Later on, I'll be talking about some big news regarding mortgage costs and why a tax-free childcare scheme has been a massive flop. We'll also be discussing how much it costs to send your child to university and how to form an investment plan to help pay for tuition and accommodation fees. This week's special guest is Josh Jones from Boston Partners, who talks to Dan about how his investment strategy involved buying shares in the hope certain ones go up and others go down in value. First up, let's start with the latest markets news. So Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve in the US, um, gave a, a testimony earlier this week. And the, the key message here was that interest rates are going to keep going up in the US, um, and potentially for longer and harder than people have previously thought. So immediately that triggered small pullback in the markets. Um, we saw about one half percent drop in the S&P 500. Uh, the, the FTSE 100 in the UK took a little sort of step backwards. But overall, we didn't have sort of a, a chaotic experience that some people might have thought would happen with, with those sort of comments. So what, what I mean, the key thing here is that the US economy is proving to be a lot more resilient than expected. And so on the 22nd of March, we'll get the next US interest rate decision. Now it's looking like a 50 basis point hike. Uh, and, and I think that investors are just going to get used to um, the idea that rates are going to stay higher and stay uh, higher for longer. So therefore, you know, the, the idea that over the last, say, three, four or five months, we've seen um, sort of shift in people thinking that the, the Federal Reserve was, you know, was almost at the top of its sort of interest rate hike cycle. Um, and then we see lots more people sort of get a bit more appetite for risk. So you've seen sort of smaller companies, for example, go up in value. Um, I just think potentially we could see that sort of you know, take a pause. Um, investors look back and say, well, OK, if, if interest rates are going to stay higher for longer, you know, what's the sort of thing I need to own? So I think there might be a slight rotation again in the market, but um, we'll have to have to sort of wait and see for the 22nd of March will be the next big test point for for markets. Elsewhere on the on the markets over the last week, some of the companies that caught my eye include Premier Foods. Um, yeah, you know, Laura, you probably you, you might be a fan of their products, even though you may not realise they're all owned by this company. Um, have you got Angel Delight, Bisto, and Axo <laughs> in your cupboard? <laughs> Angel Delight just really reminds me of my childhood. I didn't know they still made that, but Bisto and Paxo definitely essentials for a Sunday roast. Yeah, I mean this 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 company owns some of the you know, really the, the the real loved brands that people have at home, and um, its share price jumped more than ten percent on its latest trading update. And what's happening here is that you know years ago it was a real zombie company. All the money it made was just being swallowed up by really high debt repayments. So it's finally sorted out its financial position. Now it's able to reinvest in its business. So. You're seeing product innovation, more efficient sort of operational infrastructure, more marketing. And so recently it's been sort of suggested that you know, during the pandemic, yes, we all went and bought lots more things uh, to have at home. We were stuck at home with you know, some treats and stuff. 
I think what Premier Foods is proving that it's not simply just a lockdown winner. Actually, you know, it, it, the way it's sort of completely reshaping its business is having a longer term benefit. Um, you know, even at the moment, it's also been pushing the idea that you know, more people can cook good, inexpensive food at home. Um, it's had this campaign called Best Restaurant in Town, sort of promoting one pound roughly um, per serving. And, and I just think that you've got a business that's actually you know, it's finally going places. And you know, whilst everyone is talking about companies facing lots of headwinds, lots of challenges, this is a great example of a company that's actually going places and doing everything that you want from a business. And boy, it's taken its time. It's been years of like, you know, letting people down, but I, I just think it's really firing on all cylinders at the moment. It's interesting seeing company results at the moment, how different companies are responding to that cost of living crisis. And that feels like one where they've really, you know, kind of taken this negative thing and turned it into a kind of potential selling point or a potential positive for the company. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really smart. You know, they, they clearly thought about um, what's going on. You know, so, some companies would just say that we've got you know, here's our great products. We've got really well-known brands. Let's keep pushing the prices up, up and up and up because we think people are just going to stick to the brands that they love. But, you know, I think Premier Premier Foods has been really smart about it. And, um, you know, their, their marketing is very clever. And you know, one of the reasons that they're able to think about how to do effective marketing is, like I say, they're not using all their cash to just be gobbled up by debt repayments now. They've actually put some money inside to be able to think about how to promote what they're doing as a business. And I'm saying it, it's working well. And one would have thought when the economy picks up and, you know, yes, people will be going back out to restaurants a lot more. But I would have thought that, you know, given what they've proved in the last couple of years, I think that they've got the recipe to to keep on growing, um, keep on finding ways to to innovate and, you know, just keep going and, and not simply be um, a certain sort of economic condition winner. I think they've probably got the, the right formula to survive in any economy. So are there any other big companies that had results this week or reported anything interesting this week? Yeah, I mean, shares in Aston Martin have been going ballistic. And again, that's a complete reversal of what you've seen in previous years in the stock market. It's up 225% since November, which is... Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's, it's quite quite remarkable, really. What's, what's sort of been happening there is you know, the, the company is... Um, I think you know just just striking a chord with 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 investors by saying um, things are sort of slightly improving. Um, there's a turnaround plan here, and it's sort of I guess it's helped that it's, it's it did very well in the Formula One at the weekend. Um, I think it's a classic. Retail investors are just sort of you know, seem to be the obsessed uh, with one or two stocks, uh, and, and the crowds will follow this sort of herd mentality. And, and I just think that you've got this now with with Aston Martin. You, you, but we've got some analysts, including one in the investment bank, Jefferies, who believe that perhaps things are getting a bit ahead of themselves. You have to say, look, Aston Martin still owns lots of money. It's got to pay off all this debt. And it could actually find it hard to keep sustaining growth because it's got to fund the shift to an electric world. And that means spending even more money it could be a real tough task to pull off. And, and just quickly, the other stock that's catching my eyes, Rolls-Royce, that's up 72% share price terms over the last three months. And here you've got a new CEO coming in, being very frank about um, the company's problems. Uh, I think that the, the market's just thinking, OK, he's clearly going to take some big actions to fix this business. So um, you know, they've got a big announcement coming at, at some point in the second half of the year of a big strategic review. Uh, I think we'll get more indication then. But so far, it seems to be that you've got 
a new management team coming in. Um, it's, it's chaps from BP. It's also brought someone else from BP along to sort out company efficiency stuff. Um, and again, you've got you know, investors are just looking at it, saying that this share price seems to be going places. They're hitching for a ride, really. But um, you know, at some point, they've got to show change in the business. Um, but at the moment, you've got this sort of the, the hope that there will be change. And that's what's fueling the share price now. So let's move on to some personal finance topics. First up, I think we should start with some mortgage things. So the last thing I saw was a flurry of lenders saying that they're going to offer just below 4% loans. You know, to, to me, that sort of suggests perhaps mortgage rates have peaked um, you know, and they're pulling back. But, but, but equally, you know, even that sort of sub 4% level, that must be beyond the means of lots of people who you know, a year ago were planning for uh, to buy a home and expecting to have a lot cheaper rates on their, when they get a, a sort of home loan. Yeah, definitely. So um, the Office for National Statistics had some great figures out this morning looking at the difference in mortgage costs between the end of 2021 and the end of 2022. And of course, 2022 had this dramatically different environment. We had loads of interest rate rises. We had that disastrous mini budget that saw mortgage rates soar. And even though rates have been dropping a little bit since then, and they had dropped um, by the a little bit by the end of last year, so that's kind of captured in those figures. Um, still, mortgage rates are just really unaffordable for many homeowners now. Um, so the figures that they looked at showed that on the average UK property, um, monthly mortgage costs had risen by more than sixty percent, adding about six thousand pounds to that annual mortgage bill. Um, and when you bear in mind that that's the average UK property, obviously people living in more expensive areas or in bigger properties um, will have faced much higher cost increases than that when they come to remortgage. And there's about 1.4 million homeowners who are going to remortgage this year. And they will be people coming off kind of two-year and five-year fixes who remor- who got that initial mortgage when the rate was really low and will now be facing much higher rate. One thing I found interesting is that they um, ONS used a thousand pounds monthly mortgage costs as a kind of barometer to see where you could afford that around the UK, um, and it's now above that in two thirds of local authority areas in Great Britain. Um, they worked it out based on a twenty-five year mortgage and a twenty-five percent deposit. But if you want a detached house, which tend to be you know bigger and more expensive, um, there's only one local authority area in the entire UK where you could afford to buy that and have your mortgage costs at a thousand pounds or less, which is County Durham. Um, But the contrast, I think, with the so those were the figures at the end of last year. If we compare that to the end of 2021, actually, with that thousand pound limit buying a detached property, you would have been able to do it in a third of local authority areas around the UK. So we've seen a massive drop in that affordability, and really, it's a combined impact of rising house prices across last year and those rising interest rates, meaning mortgage costs are more unaffordable. Now, lots of people will say, okay, well, interest rates have been rising and house prices have been rising in lots of other um, countries around the world, lots of other developed nations. But there was a separate report out from Fitch Ratings, um, which essentially said that UK homeowners are far worse off than those other other people in developed countries in terms of being able to afford their monthly repayments. And they expect that the number of people that are missing three months or more of mortgage payments, so 
find that they can't make those payments, they think that number of people is going to double this year. So all of that points to kind of quite unaffordable mortgage costs for lots of people as they come to remortgage this year. Um, We've talked about it before. There's a few things you can do if you're kind of in that camp. You can extend the term of your mortgage, which costs you more in the long run, but it reduces your monthly repayments. Um, But I think the big advice is if you're in that situation and you're coming to remortgage this year is to speak to a mortgage broker about what your options are ahead of time. If mortgages are expensive, you can just imagine what childcare costs are. I mean, I know from having two daughters that all your money as a parent is sort of being eaten up by nursery and childminer costs. But, um, you know, what facts have you got up your sleeve on, on childcare this week then, Laura? Well, that it's extortionately expensive. Having just had the fee <laughs> update from my daughter's nursery, I'm now flabbergasted once again at the cost of nursery. Um but we've been looking at some figures on tax-free childcare. So this is the government scheme. Previously, people used childcare vouchers. This scheme um, replaced it, and it was um, announced way back in 2013. And essentially how it works is you pay money into this government account and you get a top-up to your money, um, and you can claim up to £2,000 a year towards childcare costs. And then money from that account gets paid directly to your nursery. Um, we're now 10 years on from when George Osborne first announced that he was going to be launching it. And the figures that we've delved into show just what a huge flop it's been in comparison to how popular the government expected it to be. So if we look in total, the government was anticipated to have spent four billion pounds over the first five years of it um, actually during that period the government spent one billion pounds so 75 percent lower spend on it than they thought they would and that's because the uptake has just been so low of it i think the name tax-free childcare just sounds confusing and people don't really understand what it's for or how they can benefit from it. Um, but having claimed it myself, I can also testify that the process of claiming it is pretty arduous um, and you have to reconfirm your details every three months to still be eligible. Um, there's quite a few kind of glitches in the system. I think there's also an issue where people think that they probably um, – earn too much to be eligible for it. People might equate it to things like child benefit, which you start to lose if once you earn £50,000 or more. Um, people might think that it's kind of not for them, which isn't true. The The cap on tax-free childcare is earnings of £100,000 or more from either partner. At that point, you become not eligible for it. But any earnings under that, you would be eligible. Um, so the figures kind of just highlight how there's been such poor uptake of it. And the government's not really advertised it much anymore. What was interesting is I was in the car the other day listening to the radio, um, Magic FM, as I'm sure you will also listen to, Dan, as a man of a similar age to me. Um, And the government has now got some adverts out at the moment talking about the childcare support that's out there and the help that people can have with rising childcare costs because they're such a massive cost for families at the moment. But all eyes are on what's going to happen in the budget next week because there's been lots of campaigning and talk for more help with childcare and with the argument um, being that the more help you give with childcare, the more parents that can get afford to get back into work because so many people find that their childcare costs are far higher than their income would be and so they give up work. So 
I think everyone is going to be looking at what the government decides to announce on that, whether that's more monetary help for families or whether it's changing some of the structure of nurseries. Um, we will see. And actually, that ties in beautifully because we're going to have a budget special next week, um, which will record just after the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, has made all of his statements. And we'll pick apart all of the key points that matter for you so that you don't have to sit and listen to that long, long speech from the Chancellor yourself. I think many parents count down the days until they stop paying nursery or child minor costs. But there always seems to be something waiting around the corner to sort of gobble up their money i know i keep i'm anticipating when my daughter goes to school just how rich i'll be because i won't be paying nursery costs but you just know there's going to be something else that crops up that i haven't thought about that i have to pay for and those parents who are seeing their kids kind of get towards 18 maybe flee the nest actually university fees are a big cost if their children decide to go to university and those fees are just on another level aren't they it is i mean i've got two children at secondary school um, and it's kind of scary when you add up how much university might cost um, so I'm you know it's very much on my mind thinking okay I really really should sort of start to to think about it um, in this week's issue of shares magazine we've been running the numbers on what tuition fees and accommodation costs might look like um, particularly if you you factor in four percent annual inflation now that figure might turn out to be too high but I just think that you know it could be ages before we, we we see inflation back down to sort of the central bank target of two percent. So, um, you know, if you're if you're looking to do uh, in a university at the moment, the, the, the fee is sort of in England's capped at nine thousand two hundred fifty pounds a year. Um, you know, if you're if you're in Scotland and you go to a Scottish university, you're lucky to have it for free, um, and it's about nine thousand pounds in Wales. Uh, but you know, from twenty twenty five, the cap ends um, in England. So. Uh, we've been trying to sort of work out, you know, if you, perhaps if you if you've got a bit of time on your side now, what might these sort of um, tuition and and also accommodation costs might be, um, you know, a few years down the line. Accommodation in twenty twenty one, the average was about seven thousand three hundred seventy four pounds per year, but the costs are actually quite wide ranging. It depends on whether you've got university halls or you're in sort of privately owned accommodation. Um, you know, I was putting together some notes for this podcast um, yesterday. My eldest daughter walked in and sort of asked what I was doing. And then she sort of basically just turned around and said to me, she goes, haven't you started? Sa- Why didn't you start saving when I was born um, for university? <laughs> <laughs> and you said, because nursery fees and everything else was so expensive at that time. Well, this is it. Yeah, I said, look, you know, it, it, it was like nursery and time wonder. Of course, we had to pay our mortgage. And then, you know, you, you'd like to go on holiday, wouldn't you? And, um, you know, all these things sort of add up. So, um, you know, I, unfortunately, like many parents, I, I've got to plan catch up and I don't have uh, you know much time to do it. So um, we, we sort of ran the numbers and thought, OK, let's say your child starts in five years time at university. It could feasibly cost you £64,000 just for tuition and accommodation across a yeah, across a three-year course. Now, of course, you got to add in food, um, you know, on on top of that. But you know, I think the idea is, you know, I don't think parents want their children to graduate with a massive student or, or a loan or, or a maintenance loan. It's, you know, a lot of the time it's unavoidable. But imagine if you could invest now, um, and, you know, perhaps cover some of these costs and ease their burden, and you know, so they can actually start their working life not worrying about all this debt. So. I worked out if you if you had five years to go, 
Um, and you, 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 you obtained 4.5% investment return a year uh, with 0.75% charges. You could hit that um, rough £64,000 target by investing £875 a month. Now, I think if you were a couple, you sh- I think a lot of people would find, okay, perhaps we could stretch to that. But it's really hard if you're a single parent or you just got, you know, you have to cover all that yourself. Perhaps one, you know, you, you or your partner are not working. Um, over 10 years, much more manageable, £507 a month. But, you know, even then it's like a lot of people just look around and say, I just don't have that money. So, but in course, the, the, the further out that you, you think that your child will start university, of course, the cost might go up. So that, that £507 a month is based on university costing £78,000, including accommodation in 10 years time. So I think, you know, the, the whole thing adds up to, you know, if you can start early, brilliant with your saving. Um, and it's always good to have a plan. But, you know, the, this is expensive, isn't it? I mean, I would love to see a solution where you know it doesn't cost that for, to send someone to university. But you're right. So many people now graduate from university with this huge debt and lots of parents will want to prevent their kids from kind of starting in life with that debt because even though it's not like normal credit card debt and you kind of repay it as you earn through your earnings, it still has a big impact on your ability to save for things like a house deposit or to save into a pension. And if parents could alleviate that debt, then obviously they would want to, but some pretty high figures, particularly if you have more than one child. So I've got a friend who's got four children. I mean, how are you going to say, I mean, that's a decision in its own right, isn't it? But how are you going to save enough money to put four children through university? Yeah, I think, I mean, unfortunately, it will be one of those situations for most people where they have to turn to student loans and stuff. So, um, yeah, tricky times. We, I mean, it's, I, I, I sort of I thought it's a good, it's a good subject to discuss. I mean, whilst the figures are very alarming, but, um, you know, crikey, what's, what's, what's next after covering university costs? You know, I need to have all these life plan things to say for <laughs> retirement <And isn't> it? <laughs> it's probably worth highlighting also that the student loan system is changing from september this year um and it actually makes means that for lots of graduates it's going to cost a lot more money to repay that debt so where at the moment that debt is wiped out after 30 years it's going to be extended to 40 years and the threshold at which you start repaying it is also reducing um Obviously, if your child isn't going to university for another 10 years, you don't know what the system's going to be. But if they're going in the next couple of years, um, you can almost guarantee that it's going to cost them a lot more than it would do now. Apart from those going into very high earning um, jobs straight out of graduating. So, Dan, maybe that should be your plan instead, just to force your daughters to go into very high earning careers, whether they want to or not. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think I, I'm trying to be the cool, cool dad and let them, let them guide their own path and, uh, you know, <laughs> not not force them to do seven days a week um, tutoring and stuff like that. So. <laughs> 
It's time for this week's guest, who has a slightly different investment strategy to most fund managers that we speak to. So Josh Jones is a portfolio manager for Boston Partners Global Long Short Strategy. Most investors will be familiar with going long, as that means buying a share with the hope that it goes up in price. But going short means taking a bet that the share price will fall, and in doing so, an investor profits from it. It can be very risky, so it's not suitable for the majority of investors, as you can lose more than the initial money you put in. But Dan recently recently met up with Josh to talk about his investment process. So let's hear what he had to say. So Josh, do you think it's easier to find something to, to invest in to go to go long, to buy a share? Or do you think actually it's easier to find something to go short on, to, to think that actually something might go wrong and, and I'll profit if that share price falls? Yeah, so the way we look at it, typically it's, you know, it's oftentimes a function of the market environment. So if stocks draw down quite a bit uh, and on, on average are just statistically cheaper, then then naturally at that point, it's easier to find longs than it is shorts. I, I would say in kind of an average market environment, though, typically finding shorts is difficult. And if you think about human behavior, um, a lot of investors in the market operate on narratives. That's what humans are drawn to. And and oftentimes you can sit down with a management team of a company and, and ask them why you should should buy their stock. And uh, they'll, they'll tell you and you can decide whether you agree or disagree with that, that assessment. Um, but you certainly can't sit down with a management team and ask them why you should short their stock. Um, and, and oftentimes the best shorts, the narrative is quite different than the data. Uh, so we take a very data-driven approach to shorting and sourcing short ideas. And I think on average, um, that just, you know, it, it creates a, a, a situation where oftentimes investor, investors on average have a hard time finding shorts. Yeah. I mean, what, what sort of stocks do you like to short? Yeah. So typically we operate, we're, we, we consider ourselves fundamental value investors. So we are looking for what we believe are statistically mispriced businesses. Now we try to incorporate quality and momentum into that. You know, on average, you do want to buy good businesses. And the natural risk of, of being value investors is that, uh, you know, we're, we're drawn to situations that, um, you know, oftentimes you have a business that's out of favor for some reason. So, um, and effectively what we're doing on the short side is, is in a simple sense, the inverse of that. Uh, you know, we're looking for businesses that we think are intrinsically overpriced. Uh, but very importantly, we want those businesses to have kind of fundamental issues and potentially, you know, negative momentum that will allow those stocks to reprice uh, to what we think is intrinsic value. So, um, you know, you can have situations where you have a company that's fundamentally losing market share, has an overlevered balance sheet, has poor accounting. So oftentimes these companies are trying to hide their issues through kind of accounting tricks. Um, and, and then you have situations where you have a company where they've just been going through a period where maybe they're over earning and the market hasn't understood that. And there's, there's you know, an earnings reset on the downside coming. So we look for kind of a, a multitude of factors that uh, in combination with intrinsically overpriced, uh, you know, we want low quality businesses and negative momentum situations. Yeah, there's something I thought is quite interesting. I, I see that you you go long and short in the same sector. So, so something like mining, uh, I always sort of got the impression that these big mining companies, they kind of move in tandem. So um, it, it's hard to sort of say one will go up, one will go down when they all seem to sort of be influenced by what's going on with the commodity prices. So, uh, you know, the, the sort of latest documentation I've seen is you had a long on Glencore and a short on Antofagasta. What, could you sort of explain why you're happy to sort of pick winners and losers essentially in those sort of in that sector. 
Yes, and that's a very fair comment. And I think oftentimes investors, uh, you know, they perceive the market, you know, if you, you're going into commodities, it's because you believe copper prices are going up or, you you know, you believe oil prices are going up. And and on average, I would say we're, you know, we, we avoid pair trading. So we're not looking to basically short a stock to necessarily hedge our longs. Now, of course, as you astutely observe in commodities, uh, you know, you have businesses that are that are selling the same commodity and they're subject to that that operating leverage. And 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 to to a large degree, a lot of the returns in these companies will be dictated by how well the commodity does. In certain situations, though, we find businesses that we think are just intrinsically underpriced. So the asset base is uh, much stronger than the market believes. Um, in this case, we do own Glencore. So Glencore has had, you know, a history where they've had some issues and they seem to be fixing those issues. The stock is quite cheap on the asset value that we think, uh, you know, basically the cash flow that the company generates. So uh, Glencore has been generating very significant levels of free cash flow from their commodities portfolio, and they've been returning that cash to shareholders. Uh, and then you have a company like Antofagasta, um, and Antofagasta has been seen, you know, the market really likes the copper outlook, um, which in a sense is fair. And Antofagasta is a pure play on copper. So it's typically received a premium valuation for that. And But when you dig through the business, they're having trouble growing. They're having trouble generating free cash flow. Uh, so we, we think the market's kind of overpricing that that asset base. And, I you know, I think... There are actually two positions we've been in for quite a while here, over two years, and uh, at varying sizes. Um, but you know, despite the fact that the commodity markets have done well, you know, over that time period, Glencore is up, you know, over 150 uh, percent, and Antofagasta is only up about 20 uh, percent or so. So you can get pretty big uh, performance differentials, uh, you know, when you dig in and kind of differentiate between the quality of the businesses and how well they're valued. Retail investors are typically told. Shorting is really high risk because you can lose more money than your initial stake. So, so as a professional um, manager of money, how do you manage the risk of you know losing money with shorts? Yeah, so I mean, it, it definitely is, and I you know just mathematically, if you buy a stock long and you start to effectively get it wrong, it shrinks in its position size, and obviously your maximum loss would be a hundred percent. On the short side, as you start to get stocks wrong, they grow in size, so they become bigger positions in your portfolio and the compounding works against you. And in theory, your loss could be infinite. So naturally, the math is is very difficult. It's what makes shorting really risky. Um, the way we get around that is really twofold. We tend to take very small positions on the short side. So um, you know, oftentimes, we're running twice as many shorts as we are longs. So where we might own um, you know, one and a half to three and a half percent of our portfolio in a single long, our typical shorts are only 40 to 50 basis points. So um, on average, at least half a percent. Uh, and, and we typically just don't take big short positions. And that basically allows us to um, avoid some of the single stock risk that occurs with short squeezing um, and all the fun stuff that, that just that just prevents natural risk to shorting. Uh, and then we're very, very uh, just disciplined about using our quantitative models to try to not have too much what we would define as um, positive momentum in the short portfolio. So this would be expensive businesses that we think are overpriced, but the stocks are just exhibiting positive momentum. So we really want to try to consistently have negative momentum, companies that are experiencing negative events now uh, to try to avoid some of those kind of that natural mathematics that can oftentimes create a lot of risk uh, on the short side. What, what advantage does a long short strategy provide versus a long only strategy? Yeah. So I th the simple way we look at it is ultimately we're trying to compound capital at a, at a, 
uh, higher than market rate of return over time. And, and, and stocks over long enough periods of times go up. Um, so we run long biased. Uh, you know, we don't actually believe in market neutral in the sense that um, our, our, our take is that we want to generate returns and generally stocks compound over time. But you reach certain points in a market cycle where stocks just naturally become more expensive. Uh, so our take at those points is that the prospective return on our long portfolio will compress. And that oftentimes you have an opportunity to make money on an absolute basis on the short side. Uh, and so typically we'll try to short more when we think stocks are more expensive. Uh, and really what we're trying to capture there is just compounding. And the way to think about that is, you know, if the market goes down 100 or 50 percent, excuse me, uh, it needs to go up 100 percent to get back to flat. Um, and if we can short more um, and, and, and basically reduce the losses on the long side of the portfolio, i.e. we would typically try to be down less than, you know, half the market in that event. Uh, then you know we're 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 working with the uh, the laws of compounding and making it easier to compound over time. And so once the stock market sells off and those shorts perform and they hit target prices, we would typically be covering them and getting more net long as we're seeing better returns on the long side. So it's really the flexibility to basically compound the portfolio um, through different market environments. And I you know last year obviously as we entered the year there were quite a bit of risks that we thought weren't priced. Um, and that was effective in, in generating high rates of return on the short side. So in a market, um, you know, despite running 40 percent net long in a market that was down, you know, 18 percent, uh, we were up about 15 percent. So it, it really can kind of help. And that just has put us in a better place to compound going forward. Do you think it's right that investors should expect a long, short strategy to make a positive return in any market condition, I guess, if you've got this flexibility to, you know, if markets were falling, you could you could do more shorting, for example. But um, is it right to say that you'll always get positive return or you know, you've got to be a bit more realistic than that? Yeah, no, I think you'd have to be more realistic. I mean, I think there are certain funds that are targeting market neutral. Our general sense is those will compound at lower rates of return. They would be targeting to be positive in all environments because we are long biased. Um, if the market starts to draw down, we would look to draw down a lot less than the market, um, but that doesn't that doesn't preclude us from being down. Uh, and you know, you could have a situation where the market goes down thirty or forty, um, and hopefully, we're doing a good job protecting capital. At that point, we're probably not finding a lot of shorts, and we're covering shorts, and it may draw down a little bit more, and that means we're down on an absolute basis. But uh, again, you know, we would then be put, putting ourselves in a position to really capitalize as the market rebounds. So, again, we're trying to compound. The capital over time, uh, you know, by by providing downside protection, but that doesn't ne necessarily mean it's absolute in all instances. Well, Josh Jones from Boston Partners, thank you ever so much for coming on to the podcast. Really good to talk to you. Great. Thank you, Daniel. Nice speaking with you as well. So that's all from us this week. Don't miss next week's show where we'll be giving our reaction to the important announcements on personal finance and investing in the budget. Thanks a lot for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.